So, Dr. Stephen Porges, world-renowned for the polyvagal theory, one of the most daunting guests I think I've interviewed. Um, incredibly well-known and incredibly scary to that end. But like so often happens, he turned out to be so humble, kind and down-to-earth, in fact. And I tried to prep by best I could, um, get my head around the ideas of polyvagal theory uh, related to this sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous responses with the vagus nerve that runs down from the brain, I believe, through the face, down around the heart and, and into the abdomen. But, well, to semi-avail, it's a complicated subject, but actually in the podcast, he breaks down incredibly, incredibly simply, in fact, incredibly clearly, incredibly practically. So, Really, it's one of my favourite podcasts to date. Um, it's a very interesting subject with this vagal tone that sends uh, messages through the face. So actually, we talk quite practically about the signals that are conveyed in the individual's responses that you see and uh, how we don't exist as isolated chunks of meaning as individuals, but we actually co-regulate. So we co-regulate our emotional states. And a lot of this is subconscious through facial gestures, tone of voice and such. Anyway, we cover much in this short interview, a lot indeed. And most interesting for us, perhaps, yeah, Stephen really emphasizes the, the importance of breathing patterns in terms of vagus stimulation, which I didn't realize. So uh, it's worth attending to that during the end of our podcast. Uh, as normal, if you've enjoyed this at all, please donate. Any amount's great. And also give us a review on iTunes and let us know what you thought of the podcast. Give us, a, give us your thoughts, feedback and responses so we, I, can do better in the future. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Um, really a pure honour to have Stephen on the show and I'll leave it there and introduce Stephen now. So, welcome Stephen to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Okay, welcome, Dr. Stephen Porges, to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Looking for for interesting dialogue. Thanks for coming. I've been waiting. I approached you like six months ago, so at least six months ago. So I'm really excited to have you. So, I mean, can you just give a basic overview of the polyvagal theory, as uh, maybe maybe as it relates to or might relate to. Yoga, okay. in the practice of yoga, okay. which is barely okay. our audience here. Great. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me give you a little, uh, at least the initial introduction here in saying that it's the least like question. I mean, of all the questions I've ever been asked, it's to me the least interesting because it basically yes, of course. forces me into literally almost scripts or unfolding of things. So <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to enable time for other questions to occur, I would basically say polyvagal theory uh, gives us an understanding that our physiological state, the state that we're in, affects how we relate to the world, how we are accessible to others, how social we are, how we interpret cues as whether they're safe, neutral, or even threatening. And it could always, they could be the same cues, but based on our bodily state, we're going to have a different reactivity to this, different processing. So in the world of yoga, or in the world of actually going to move it well beyond yoga, in the world of any type of interaction in which there's a transfer of information or communication between two individuals, uh, the individuals have to have physiological states that enable their bodies to have a degree of accessibility. 
Now, in the world that we're in, those become kind of obtuse types of statements. But if we say that the person is present with us, so like in the world of yoga, we might use terms like being present, being mindful, being engaged. That's really a product of our physiological state. That if our physiological state is tuned to detect predators and threat cues, our bodies become tighter and tenser, and we interpret cues uh, Basically, we bias our reactions to threat and protection and not to accessibility, understanding. And then we start getting all these, as, as well within yoga philosophy, emergent properties of benevolence, compassion, curiosity, mm. uh, love, and trust. I think I read some, somewhere that you say you're not so interested in the individual or treating the individual as the individual in context. Oh, yeah. I quite like that. So yeah, I think... Yeah. You know, we're products of our culture, we're cool. products of our science, we're products of our education, and our cult are, are basically uh, institutions of our culture. And they have been very oriented towards the individual. We think of disease as being solely within the individual. Uh, we think of treatment as if we are going to an automobile repair shop. We don't, in a sense, have a total appreciation of the dynamics of our own resources. And it's really kind of a limited world. <laughs> and I think the pandemic has taught us all that the isolation and separation, or even those who still interact a lot, they're still not interacting at the same level of accessibility that their bodies are screaming for. You know, we, we want to be safe with others. We want to be in close proximity with others because when we are, our body is in a different state. We become different. Mm. And that, I mean, is the lead on to co-regulation, which yeah. I've heard you talk about a lot. And I mean, how... How, how would you describe that in terms of the individual? And how does, what does that look like? Well, it looks like the fact that we're projecting or broadcasting invitations, reciprocal invitations to be closer to each other. And co-regulation is really the uh, utilization of physiological states that promote facial expressivity, intonation of voice. And this is a mm. co-regulatory set of interactions, meaning cues of facial expressivity, intonation of voice, uh, are a reflection of my physiological state, but they also mm. are triggering in you a physiological state of accessibility. And that becomes co-regulation. And this becomes, I call it, our evolutionary heritage. So sociality is our evolutionary heritage, but sociality is not a, let's say, optional. It's obligatory for our nervous system because mm. it is functionally a neural modulator of our autonomic nervous system. So this ability to co-regulate, to be social with each other, to listen and to project our physiological state and to be reassured by the intonation of another person's voice is our evolutionary heritage. This is what we evolved to be uh, to enable us to turn off our threat reactions where other more primitive vertebrates, like reptiles, uh, they can be neutral or they can be in states of defense, but they're not in a state of sociality. And if our physiology gets into a state that's more similar to, like, to a reptile, then sociality becomes cues of threat, and we react to people, and we don't allow them in, into, uh, we lose our accessibility. 
And mm. the pandemic has contributed to shifting thresholds. So it's one of the, uh, I would say, turning points in an understanding of our humanity. And that is uh, through our own evolutionary history, when we have been threatened, we reach out to others. We co-regulate with others. But during the mm. pandemic... I the, the one question I'd have screams to me immediately is, can you co-regulate in context? Which is what you're looking for, is to contextualize yourself within a group, within yeah. a framework. Well, right? let's throw without, the word. Without, without contrasting it to the other who's a threat to that. Well, I, I'm... I'm so you're saying, does, I'm, does, yeah, does co-regulation always predispose a threat outside in which to contextualize well, yourself within a, within a dynamic? Well, of course, because let's say a... A dog barks at a child and the child starts to cry and the child goes to the mother and the mother gives this warm, safe context and basically is, has an accessibility of ventral side of the body, cuddles the child, uses a voice of intonation and is reassuring. So you, in a sense, change from a global context to a more micro, a dyad, and that's co-regulation. So the history of humanity, the survival of it was the baby pops out, the baby's born, but what are the initial cues that that baby's given? Uh, it baby's given voices of the mother, intonation, it's been cuddling, and also it's put on the breast. And the sucking, swallowing, and breathing system uh, is the neural circuits that become our social engagement system. So that in itself is part of social behavior. So the nursing or ingestion becomes an act of sociality. And of course, as we get older, we go out with friends, we have a, something to eat or something to drink as integrated into our social engagement behaviors. We leave digestion to the personal side of our lives. But ingestion <laughs> is our is sociality. It's the same circuits. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, and what about the breathing in that? Yeah, mm. well, you're flipping now. You, I don't, I want to go, you're, I, hold that for a moment because what we're going to say oh, is, okay, sorry. Uh, no, yeah. it's, it's not, because it, you're right on the right target because the sucking, swallowing, vocalizing and breathing is functionally the neural structures that become pranayama yoga. So what you were saying is breath is important because the slow exhalation, the way the breath is changed, is also a neuromodulator. So it's all integrated into the same brainstem circuits of neuroregulation of facial muscles, including muscles in the middle ear. So when we listened to melodic sounds or chants or vocalize, which are also muscles uh, neural, neurally regulate in the same area of the brainstem that's regulating a branch of the vagus that's unique to mammals. So it's a vagal activity that's both calming. So the point of our own evolutionary history, we have to kind of step back and say, where did this all come from? What's the function of all this? You know, we're talking about innocent super level, upper level understandings. But think about how did primitive mammals communicate to each other that they were safe to come close to? They did through intonation of voice, of vocalization. They didn't have language, but they had intonation. And so what they were doing is they were broadcasting their bodily state. And so the intonation, the tonal qualities of vocalization was really the trumpet 
of their autonomic nervous system. It was telling the other, safe to come close to, stay away. And it, till today, we have the same system. You know, if, if someone yells, people will brace and pull back. If someone has a melodic voice, they become, oh, I'm comfortable with you. Yes, I heard you saying also that if someone smiles and says something in a certain way, they can kind of get away with saying things that are perhaps uncomfortable, you know, or, you know, unwanted, kind of in a dialogue sense. Right? Well, it, it, to um, me, you know, I guess, you know, we, we always keep memories in our mind until we are later mm-hmm. able to understand what those memories have taught us. So the memories I have, and these go back decades and decades, of people that I've known who would say the most outrageous stuff. People would literally buy them drinks or, you know, it was like, you know, and I realized, you know, you know, these were types of statements that I felt that if I were to make them, I'd end up being on the floor. And, and the, the answer is uh, they, they were, in a sense, triggering the physiology of the other. And so the other person just kind of laughed. And it's, uh, we call this, you know, charming people, people, or I like to call them super co-regulators because it doesn't matter what they say, they walk into the room. Super, super regulators. And and your body, your body basically gives up its defensiveness. That person, meaning that it doesn't matter what that person says, the intentionality is not being conveyed that that's a hurtful person. I'm sure you probably don't want to, but could you talk a little bit more specifically about the vagus nerve sure. and the regulation of the system? Yeah. And sure. the exhale, I think you say something about yeah. how it's stimulating the heart. The yeah. heart, like the exhale stimulates, uh, doesn't stimulate the heart. <laughs> well, it regulates the heart. And so, okay. so let's, let's kind of build the model for a moment. Uh, the vagus yeah. is this very, very large nerve that exits our, our brainstem and goes to virtually every organ in our body. Uh, the uh, interesting part, and this is where polyvagal comes into it. Polyvagal means many vagi. So in a sense, there are more than one branch of the vagus embedded in that nerve. So it's a reconceptualization of, I would say, the naive information that we learned. And that was we learned that it was an integrated nerve and the nerve had certain functions. And we didn't ask the next level question, where did the wires come from? So, and the interesting part is the wires in the vagus come from different areas of the brainstem. They don't come from the same area. And one area of the brainstem is called dorsal, meaning the back part of the brainstem. And this area is basically shared as the, as a primary vagal regulated uh, pathway in virtually every vertebrate. So it's a very old and, you know, we have it and it's kind of been repurposed from ancient uh, vertebrates to modern social mm-hmm. mammals. But something interesting occurred along this phylogenetic journey. So now we have to get excited about the phylogenetic journey because what is different between the asocial reptiles and social mammals? There was a repurposing of the autonomic nervous system and a branch literally migrated from that dorsal area. The cells start there and they move forward ventrally to an area of the brainstem that controls the muscles of the face and head the ventral vagal complex. And this to me is, in a sense, the breaking of a code. Because suddenly, the facial expressivity, intonation of voice, the ability to extract voice from background sounds, are all integrated with that vagal regulation of the heart. Then we can start getting into what else 
do we know? We know that that pathway uh, uh, is actually activated or becomes stronger during exhalation. So we can calm our bodies down through extending duration of exhalation. And of course, you know, there are yoga breathing patterns and you can energize your body through systematic withdrawal of that vagal break through extending inhalations and reducing duration of exhalations. So you basically can gain a degree of agency or self-control over your autonomic state through through breath. And of course, yoga uses a lot of that and has, actually has the whole, many of the models uh, codified so that you can deal with that. But if we move into like the world of pranayama yoga, and we start talking about stimulation of the face and the oral cavity, those are the afferents, the sensory receptors of trigeminal and facial nerve, and sometimes even vagal afferents, like on the ear. So there's like auricular acupuncture uh, is actually stimulating vagal afferents. And when you start seeing it in that way, you realize that all these very ancient traditional treatment models were treatment models of regulating physiological state and they were working through that ventral vagal complex because the facial muscles that uh, are regulated uh, by the facial nerve, the trigeminal nerve, and the oral cavity, and uh, the laryngeal and pharyngeal nerves are actually vagal nerves. They're myelinated, but they are, in a sense, parallel to the neural regulation of the heart. So the way we have intonation of our voice is this evolutionary vestigial uh, remnant of an ancient organism that was communicating solely through intonation and that was merely projecting physiological state and we still do it you know we get mm. people get intense they get angry they get mellow they get you know accessible it's all there we just needed to be reminded that we carried this history with us is it as simple as the polarity of system the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic, or do you think there's a bit more complicated than that rather than just oh. like get people, because people are very keen these days. So we need to get out of fight or flight and then you've got to get into rest well, and digest. Yeah, and that's kind well, of just the answer. That's just the answer there. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's some truth to, to some of this because there wouldn't be sure. these global statements yeah. over centuries. Mm. But I would say the world of trauma has taught me there's a lot more. So when I developed mm. the polyvagal theory, I talked about a third state, which utilized that old uh, dorsal vagal system in defense. And so now the vagus was no longer merely a, a rest, health, and growth, and restoration system, but was now a defense system that when, when it worked, it basically put the body into a state of like death fainting, shutting down. And, you know, I didn't really understand that this would be such a prevalent state that would be shared by so many people. And many people who have survived trauma said, you're telling me my own story. And I couldn't, they were saying also that I couldn't tell this to the therapist because they wouldn't believe me. They said, you must be in a fight or flight. And so you now get into a argument of the validity of your own feelings. You lost your voice. So polyvagal theory gave voice to those who had gone through life threat situations. And there are many people who've experienced it, not everyone, but people have shut down. And, you know, uh, uh, it's seen, the reason it was of interest to me is I was doing research on 
basically newborn babies and preterm babies. And when they have difficult deliveries or preterm, they don't have this new mammalian vagal system's not working. And so their heart rate is really being regulated a lot by the sympathetics and they get higher heart rates. But when their bodies basically crash, they can't maintain that metabolic output. They go into that dorsal conservation level. And what they call this in the neonatal intensive care units, death spells. And literally, the babies basically start to, uh, they're not getting enough oxygen to their brains when their heart rates go that slow. They're basically becoming reptilian-like. And reptiles can do things like this very well because they don't need much oxygen. But mammals need a lot. So recruiting that ancient reflexive circuit has adaptive mm. functions, but it also carries with it a degree of lethal vulnerability. Mm, mm, mm. So basically, what you're talking about is a it's a frozen state that we see quite often in, in it, people that have had it, trauma. It's a good word that you brought up because it's not just frozen. Sometimes it's limp. And it totally immobilized. Disassociated? Well, it gets complicated. Yeah. So if we think of it as a, that we're, the pro, our experiences are a product of, of life experiences and a, let's use this term, an intuitively intelligent nervous system that has one motivating uh, function, keep us alive. So its initial reaction to a life threat stimulus might be to shut down defecate, pass out. But that in itself has its own risk factors because it reduces oxygen flow. You can get hurt and there's a degree of vulnerability of being in that immobilized state. So the nervous system recalibrates and then creates what I call a hybrid state, utilizing sympathetics with that dorsal immobilization and that gets you frozen. So frozen has muscle tone so you don't pass out. But it, it keeps you from moving. So it has both the positive one of immobilization and the positive one of not passing out. And then over time, and this is really with people with severe uh, histories of abuse, the nervous system gets even smarter and says, don't even go into that state. Just go someplace else. <laughs> so it says, it says uh, dissociate, break down. Don't experience what your experience is. Fragment mm. your, your sense of self. Mm. And I think we have to, in a sense, honor dissociation as a nervous system, a successful nervous system in dealing with a really devastating contextual world, that the nervous system is doing its best. And again, I think the, the pathway through healing and recovery is really a pathway of honoring what your body has done as mm. opposed mm. to going through and saying, oh, crap, look what I've done again. Mm. I've, I've snapped yeah. out. This is not valid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, you talk, I mean, you use some great terms. Like, I mean, I was looking at something you'd written and talking about being, feeling real and present. And uh, uh, you also talk about kind of, in trying to get back to endorsing the feelings that are actually in the body, mm. some neural exercises. So on a practical level, like how do you get from the frozen, and I would like to know this myself, how do you get to the frozen state to the to, to, to accepting and endorsing the, the state that is in the body? Okay, so the pragmatic <laughs> simple one is that this is a hierarchy yeah. and that if you can co-regulate and socially interact and utilize the social engagement system, everything's going to be great. It doesn't quite work that way because we have smart nervous systems. And uh, people carry 
with them an embedded knowledge of their own history. So what it really means is that uh, if they're in these states of being frozen or defensive, let's just say their body and their autonomic nervous system has been repurposed and retuned to be defensive. Not bad if you're in a threatening environment, but not very good to develop friendships, social relationships, yes. you know, all the things that we quote, put yeah. up there. And, yeah. and, and so what's our strategy? Our strategies, pharmaceuticals or something like that, dump, numb the system out even more, and then it won't bother you. But the real issue is the body will find a way to protect you. And so it's going to, in a sense, uh, it, the drugs may work for a while and then they, it, it, it just won't work. So the way out of this is to start with is knowledge because we're a smart organism and we have top-down pathways and bottom-up pathways. The bottom-up are always going to win. So in a sense, if we feel threatened, we're always going to feel threatened and we should not try to top-down the threat. But we can top-down acknowledge and honor those threat reactions and we can start understanding what it is our body's doing and we can titrate. We can say that, okay, I can handle a little bit and now I have to withdraw my body recovers. Uh, put it in another way, what we're really saying is that when you are retuned from, from a, let's say, the optimal individual uh, who very few of us could be categorized as optimal, uh, which is that we feel safe enough most of the time that when we feel not safe, we know what to do. We come to others. In fact, most of us feel that we're under fire a lot of the time and we don't really have the moments to turn off the defense that our body is screaming for. And I think yoga has become one of the self-selected uh, strategies to try to turn off the fire, to try to say, I need some moment or times where I'm not in great states of, of threat. The critical point is that feelings of safety. So if we, if we thought this was a simple story, we basically say, give people essence of safety and trust and everything will be mm. fine. Mm. The answer is that if you carry with you a retuned system that is, is that's constantly looking, looking for threat, uh, cues of safety become cues of threat because cues mm. of safety are cues of vulnerability accessibility right and if we even talk to people uh, or I should say what I have I have talked to and I've learned from those who've had trauma histories and what I've learned is that uh, safety can be a powerful trigger of this vulnerability so when a person has a severe trauma history who was the predator who was the inflictor of the pain someone often frequently someone whom they had trusted, and they let that person into their life, and their nervous system is smart because it basically says, done that, don't want to do that again. And so all you need to do is listen to the narratives of the heroic people who have survived severe trauma histories. They have a dream, and the dream is to be safe in the arms of another. So the dream is there. The top-down vision is there. But when they start getting in proximity with another or someone comes, tries to come close to them, their bodies react and they become defensive. So it's not like their intention isn't to have that relationship. Their body says, too close. 
And so the real understanding of moving into this is really a gradation of understanding what your body's doing and then a literally a neural exercise plus psychoeducational learning that those triggers are not valid. So it's like, okay, you're coming close. I really, you know, I trust you. I was, you know, all this come close. That's all I can handle today. Maybe we can handle a little more tomorrow. And in a sense, that's what therapy does. It says really, that's what trauma therapies are doing. They're saying, uh, experience, experiences aren't bad. The reactions of defense aren't bad, but they can't dominate every moment. Where do we start? Bottom up or top down? We uh, basically throw away oh. those terms. Oh. Right. <laughs> you see, uh, we're locked in the, into this dualistic world of approach mm-hmm. when we're really mm-hmm. talking about dynamically interacting uh, parts of a system. So we're locked into like mind, body, and the notion it's all mm. in your head and the separation between uh, mental health and physical health. When in reality, there's a core process, and that is, is the body in a state of safety or a state of threat? And if it's a state of threat, everything else emerges from it, including organ dysfunction. So it's because the body can't take care of itself because it's, it's kind of like a Star Trek metaphor and where you have to use the energy shields, but the energy shields are really wiping out your resources. And we live in a world of threat and we're wiping out our interpersonal resources in a sense, protecting ourselves. And I think you were saying you, you're not looking to make people feel safe because how can people feel safe when there's all this threat around them? So does that expand your model to to a kind of social model as well for safety? When you say, right, you can't make people feel safe when there are people with guns in the US, you know, all yeah. around. around. The, the, the first part of this is that we're, okay, within our sciences and let's say mental health science and physical health science, we're, we're very confused. So we use terms like uh, stress, but we don't talk about what it is that is optimal. We talk about removal of something. We talk about threat without talking about safety. So we, we make these assumptions that if we remove threat, we're safe. Far from it. Uh, removal of threat isn't a bad thing. I'm not making that point. I'm saying it's just part of the story, and we haven't really given let's say, an, enough enough time, enough air time for a discussion of really the body's need to feel safe. We treat this as uh, optional and not obligatory. And if we were to think of feeling safe merely as being the uh, projection, our own subjective understanding of our autonomic state, then feeling safe is really saying our bodies in a state that supports health, growth, and restoration. And when we don't feel safe, we're disrupting our organs. And not only our social relationship, we're disrupting our core processes. We're going to get sick. Uh, And it's not just mental illness, it's physical illness. So we've used terms like diseases of modern day, and these become cardiovascular and cancer. But what we're really talking about is the neural regulation of our internal organs has been disrupted by being in states of threat. But now let's say if we remove threat, is that enough? And I'm saying that that doesn't even get us to the table. (laughs) The real issue is we have to identify and understand that there are pathways of feeling safe. 
And that changes our culture and it changes our world because we now have a respect for the nourishments, what our bodies need, what the nourishment our body needs through social interaction, through co-regulation, through cues of safety. But is it feeling unsafe just an honest reaction to, to the world? <laughs> kind of, is it a bit of a trick to kind of like co-regulate into safety? Um, because you're never okay. really safe and then sooner or later you die. So, I mean, the feeling unsafe is a reasonable response to, to reality, surely. I, I think every, everything, quote, is a re- reasonable response because <laughs> your, your, it's, your body is telling you something. So your narrative has a lot of, of validity. And it also says there are cues around you that you're not getting sufficient, you're not getting enough of. And it doesn't mean you have to get these cues 24-7 in every environment, but you have to have the option for this. So visualize for a moment a puppy, a dog. And what do you do with the dog? Do you have a dog? No. No. Well, well, I have had a dog, so yeah. I know, I know, and I know, I know what a puppy is. So, we're yeah, all good. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I a good start. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have any dogs now because they they left us. You know, they transitioned, and it took. And then during the grieving pandemic occurred. So, it, it, but the issue is when a dog gets on its back and does this, you know that dog is safe in your presence. It's not the interpretation that you totally dominate the dog and the dog is submissive. The dog is saying, I trust you, rub my ventral side. And the ventral side is a side of vulnerability, as it is with humans. So we're always, in a sense, protecting. And again, within, let's use terms that people in the yoga community are familiar with, people who are tightly wrapped. These are you know, concepts, and many of them want to do yoga to deal with this being tightly wrapped. And they may come into yoga by saying, uh, I have shoulder pains or I have hip pains or this. But what they're really saying to you is their body is in a state of threat. And you can see it in the muscular structure, and they need to, in a sense, be able to open up their ventral side, become accessible, become present, and get onto a journey of embodiment. But this whole journey is the same journey of co-regulation, of social interaction with others. And so you start finding out that people come to yoga when it was real phase. Actually, even on Zoom, they're finding it as a social network to interact even on Zoom. Absolutely. Because, because they're feeling uh, safe with others in, the, in their mm. presence. And that has a powerful uh, rehabilitative component to it. What about the idea in embodiment? In embodiment... You can now just simply express what you want, and then, and then, and then, and then therefore, what happens is obviously you, you deregulate against the other who you have to be in contact with, right? So, you, mm. I mean, basically, I'll try to prime you to kind of talk about the tension, the social tension between having responsibilities in mm. the context and yeah. being an individual with their own desires who would do the fuck whatever the fuck they want, you know? Uh, right. But I would say, like, I, I'm yeah. a parent, but my kids are growing up now. So I go into, when you ask those questions, I talk in my mind. I go back to my responsibility to my kids and responsibility to my elderly parents when they were transitioning, my responsibility to my family about maintaining a profession, uh, the, the basically inherent aggressiveness and competitiveness of being an 
an academic scientist. So I have a, a good understanding of the degree of bodily defensiveness that we function on a day-to-day level. And I really appreciate this period of time in my life where I'm able to separate these issues. So financial needs aren't there, uh, safety of my kids, education. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of things that became, in, uh, that are no longer important that I've gone through. They were important at the time. And I realized that uh, we need, I guess I always had the vision you know, so it's kind of like the traumatized person. I had the vision of feeling safe in the arms of another. I had the vision of a time in which I could leverage, let's use the term, the successes of my youth to, in a sense, be expressive in a later point in, in life. And in a sense, this is in a way what I'm doing. Um, that I'm, I'm in a sense, doing, living, uh, trying to, uh, uh, overcome the barriers or boundaries that create the frustrations that affected me when I was a full-time faculty member. And those were, you know, I wanted my ideas to have impact on society. Mm. And for a scientist, it's the, the map is not easily drawn for that. And uh, because you're too busy protecting your local minefields, you know, you have to be very careful about where you walk. And it's yeah. much more fun to be out there and be expressive and to uh, cross boundaries. Uh, that's where creativity I occurs. Ha- I heard you talking about the constraints or, and, and of uh, well, like the creative, the creative uh, potential of constraints. Is that well, not? Is that well, the case, or have you changed, changed your mind now? You've now you're out of constraints. You actually, um, <laughs> I, I, well, they enable you to. Uh, well, first of all, we're all under constraints. That is, mm, that we mm. uh, we learned that success in certain channels are are race basically positioning us to do other things. So we leverage. So this is like a constraint of getting a degree, a constraint of getting tenure, a constraint of publications or being, let's say, a society president. Uh, there's an understanding that you have to do a certain set of things to create the credibility so that your voice is heard. So you have a voice. And I think those constraints within the academic world are relatively obvious, but not available, meaning that you, not everyone can, let's say, succeed with all the multi-levels of, of those constraints. And when, when you succeed to any level of that, you have to feel basically good. You have to, in a sense, be able to utilize success as making you feel, quote, safer, so that you can now become more of who you are. Let's go back to your word embodiment. You can become safer in your own body and therefore more emergently creative. Um, the, the word embodiment, I've been playing around with that also a lot. And I think that, you know, what we're really embodiment is really a mind body or brain body integration. If we want to get mm. to the simple, mm. uh, deconstruction mm. of it, it's really saying is my nervous system, uh, enabling communication between my body and my brain. And what you're saying is, it says under threats, there is a disembodiment, which is the breaking down of the feedback between those neural pathways. And there's a numbness and there's a physiological and health consequences. You get 
end organ diseases. Your nerves are no longer regulating your heart. Well, it's, a kind of reje- it's a kind of rejection of self, really, isn't it? A lack well, of it, the ability it, or, or willingness that, to ignore yourself. That's too negative. <laughs> See, <laughs> well, what, so, well, that was an easy one to say, but I'll just get in there a second. Was yeah. It goes further than simply you're, you know, being a successful professor or anything like that, but simply the individual you know, on the track of embodiment yeah. has to embody themselves in codependence, in sorry, co-regulation. That's another question, perhaps. Yeah. But in co-regulation, so there are inherent constraints on our own happiness in embodiment, right? One might have a feeling to do a certain thing and take mm. that as embodiment, but that's not going to make you happy if it really upsets a lot of other people around okay. you and need to co-regulate with those people. Yeah, well, let's let's leave. Okay, so if we say, can you be happy without feeling safe? So let's really say that the core is to feel safe. And then these higher level processes, happiness, and in your modeling, happiness has a co-regulatory component to it. That's a shared experience. And I'm on board with that. I'm fine with that. That uh, If we start thinking about self-success that can't be shared, we're in really a mess. And so, you know, I, I think you're, you're on to something. But the, the real part of this embodiment is really to say, I feel safe enough to engage another. It's like the traumatized individual has the dream of being held. They want to be held, but their bodies are not safe enough to allow them, to give them permission to do that. The nervous system is a gatekeeper. It's not giving them permission. And so embodiment is the first step of that permission of this more global or more dyadic uh, relationships with other people in the world. That as we become embodied, we stretch out and interact with others. But you're asking, in a sense, I think there's a deep level question here. And that is, uh, do we co-regulate to feel embodied or are we embodied to co-regulate? Um, or are they basically, uh, in a sense, co-occurring processes? They're certainly mutually supportive of each other. Um, the, I, I actually, in, in this paper, I'm writing the science of safety. I went back to a paper I wrote in the 1990s on organization of systems as a model for understanding uh, success of premature kids. And I got at this notion of a level in which the uh, autonomic nervous system was organized, a level in which the autonomic nervous system was now reacting to higher brain structures so that you can now suck, swallow, and breathe, and then relate to motor movement so you can uh, coordinate motor. And then finally, at level four, to social interactions. And the model was saying that every every level is dependent upon the level underneath it. So it's a hierarchical model of regulation. And in general, uh, the autonomic regulation, this very primitive one that I'm saying is part of feeling safe, is very closely developed at the time that we regulate it so that, that we have neural exercises of what we talk about sucking, swallowing, breathing, and vocalizing. That's a neural exercise of that vagal regulatory system. And that provides, in a sense, the neural regulation for movements so that we can now engage others. And then we have the reciprocity. So they're, in a sense, sequentially developed, but I'm not sure about, uh, it's almost like saying we have maturational benchmarks, 
but the time between those benchmarks uh, can be blurred all over the place. It's just to get to one point, we have to have this other point on on board. And, and just that's an aside, what, yeah, you have the you have the. Um, the breathing part, right? You have the uh, regulation of the voice. Okay, so we know that the exercises, you know, singing or, or pranayama. Do you have, I mean, you know, just, just pop to the mind. Do you have any ideas for the sucking, swallowing part of it? Well, eating. Uh, you know, babies do sucking as well. Yeah, look, no, but one can eat in a very different ways, right? Have you ever thought of that? Mindful eating being important, or you know, I, something like I, that. I'm thinking. I will tell you what I did think of. I started thinking about eat without chewing. Yeah, well, yeah. I started thinking yeah. about uh, people with eating disorders, and mm, if, mm, if mm. they had quote exactly. eating clubs in which they were, in a sense, on uh, let's say Zoom or even just the cell phones, uh, and yeah. could eat whatever yeah. they wanted, but they had to, in a sense, interact with others while eating. What would happen mm. to the amount mm. of food that they took in? Super. And my guess would be that it would go down. So mm. the the issue is neural exercises of talking and social interaction are affecting the same system of suck, swallow, and breathing. Mm. Uh, okay. I think the, uh, again, I think this becomes part of a lot of, uh, I would say, more ancient strategies of pranayama yoga, where they were actually outlined in the neural path, in a sense, metaphorically, in the neural pathways that are involved in those structures, uh, including oral motor stimulation, uh, the tongue being moved back and stimulating the roof of the mouth or going into the nasal pharynx. So these, yeah. in a sense, uh, radical procedures... Yeah, yeah, are uh, it's as powerful neural exercises. So they're all there, is what I'm really saying. Mm, the question mm, is mm. whether we tap into them and are we instructed well enough to utilize them? A couple more short questions. What's the difference between codependence and co-regulation? Well, the uh, yeah. The codependence world is you know, end up talking to the people in the addiction world. So um, the uh, co-regulation is a much it's this positive one of mutually optimizing physiological state. In a sense, moving people into states of feeling safe with each other, uh, and that's how it. I suppose the idea, the idea finally is to self-regulate. Um, is co-regulation leads to self-regulation, or do we constantly have to co-regulate? Well. Yeah. It's, it, it's, a better, it's, probably, it's probably a better question than you, than you think it is. Uh, it's a really good question because, again, our culture places so much uh, emphasis on the individual. And so self-regulation becomes what people talk about, especially in school systems. But self-regulation is derivative of a system that is well, has a good history of co-regulation. And that history of co-regulation enables self-regulation through interesting alternatives. So uh, the self-regulation can occur through a visualization of a co-regulator. So you might be, in a sense, have a bad day and you sit down in your room and you have a visualization of someone that you feel very comfortable with and you have a smile or, you know, and, and your body calms down because now the top-down system is your co-regulator of that bottom-up feeling. And that's part of an embodied state, that you're now embodied to utilize these resources. So 
the way I kind of summarize it, or like this simplify it, is that we need to emphasize co-regulation opportunities earlier in life, and that will lead to more skill and more uh, better self-regulators later in life. And they will have, in a sense, mental images of co-regulatory experiences to, to pull down. Uh, and I also think we don't need too much opportunity to co-regulate. Uh, but we do need opportunity. So the issue is uh, when someone needs to talk or be with someone, we have to be very uh, appreciative. And we can't say, not now, not now. So, it's it, you know, it was like understanding that uh, moments of reciprocity don't need to be long, but they need to be there. So it's like when some, now people text, and I used to ask in, in my workshops, how long can your body, your nervous system, tolerate a latency from uh, a text to a response? How long can you handle? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. and, and everyone knows. Everyone knows what I'm talking about is that the narrative starts to change. Yeah. Narrative starts Depends to change. That's what you're asking for. It is. <laughs> yeah. The narrative changes as the latency gets longer and longer. Mm, mm, yes. 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 What about... <laughs> You'd speak about witnessing or um, you understand what I'm saying? That you know, ra- rather than this tendency of co-regulation, of yeah. well, you know, we just co-regulate. So someone's saying that, you know, they're, they're telling me their, their problems or their issues and I, I ought to try and solve it yeah. or, 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 get well. to, uh, or get rather empathic, get very empathic and involved in the issue. And you actually talk about that being, you know, re-traumatizing the victim. Kind of it can. It can. Yeah, it the can. idea so. of just simply witnessing, acknowledging. And, I, and, I think and, the, the most, imp- I think we are poor witnesses as, as a culture. That is that we're so t- attuned to try to fix the wrong. You know, we view that as a moral imperative. And the point is that someone who has been wronged or injured, uh, they want to be heard. They want to be witnessed. And they don't want a judgment made about their experience. They want to be able to have a voice. And I think we've done a horrible job in terms of doing this, including many of our, quote, intervention models, which claim that they're compassionate-based or or, uh, empathy-based. And the other issue is I distinguish between empathy and compassion. And my distinction is not consistent with many of my colleagues, at least in the clinical world. I see empathy uh, from a laboratory and a science perspective as a mirroring of the other person's emotion and compassion as being much more of a supportive, respectful and witness of the other person's emotion. And I think they have different impact on the individual. And again, I've learned so much from those who have survived severe trauma. They say they don't want to tell their story for fear. Mm. Then mm. it will be it will hurt people. They don't want to see mm. the pain in other people's yes. faces. They don't want True. to get feel mm. that people should be outraged and want to fix it. They want the feeling of support and to have their voice heard. And, and I think we have to we have to hear. We have to be respectful and be a good witness. What's the relation of shame to that? I mean, how. Well, how do you how do you get how do you get out of that loop? That's my this is my last question. I really wanted you to say something because you speak nicely about shame and the ideas of kind of just uh, acknowledging the states in the body. I think if we are good witnesses, 
I think shame dissipates on its own. The shame becomes this interpretation and a sense of responsibility. It's almost like we have to justify our narrative and we end up saying that we failed and we have to, in a sense, honor what our body has done. So the antidote to shame is to honor the nervous system. And the other part in understanding that is to take away at times the agency of what our body has done rather than say, I wanted to do that. This is what my body did for me. And I'm honoring this. It's like the, the rape uh, survivor who hasn't fought back and they're living with the shame that they didn't do something, but they, let's use this term, they survived, they weren't killed, and their body made a decision that was outside the realm of their consciousness. And they have to honor that. It's not that their body was doing something bad to them. It was doing something, trying to save them. And if they fought back, they could have been really, they could have been killed. So we have these narratives that we play with, but we stop the narrative and say, let's witness what our body has done. Let's be a good self-witness. Let's be with self-compassion on that level, and let's honor that. And then, I mean, then the shame takes on a different valence. It becomes the intensity, because the shame is always, or always usually structured in terms of others' expectations of us. And once we give that up, that it's not me, you know, it was not my intention, then the shame should dissipate. Stephen, there's no good place to end this, really. So I'm just going to ask you a really stupid question to end it all, which I wasn't going to ask you at all. Um, uh, but I ask it to all my regular yoga yoga guests, so I'll ask it to you as well. <laughs> After this deep dialogue, can I ask you, um, what, what, can you tell me something that inspires you? It can be a book or a place or a person. And can you give me one guilty pleasure? And don't, you, you, don't worry about the word guilty, but you know what I mean. But, you know, something you like a, a silly, well, uh, trivial I pleasure. Okay, so I would say that during during the pandemic, there are certain things that I've learned uh, from listening to my body, and that is we live oceanfront, and I've really learned that I really love to sit uh, on the deck listening and watching the waves, and the guilty pleasure is in my hand that I normally, it's a cup of coffee sitting out there listening, listening to the waves. So I enjoy the passive aspect of being around a living system, which are the waves and their trees in the backyard and birds and squirrels. I like the feeling of being part of that uh, uh, much more than I enjoy, let's say, walking on the beach or being in the water. So it's like I, I'm in a sense observing and it's enveloping around me. So, I, you know, so it's like we're all part of this together. And I think there's, I, there's a, there's a, not just a biological, there's an organic uh, sense of uh, connectedness when you are near the ocean. It's a very interesting feeling. And that's why people, uh, humanity has really uh, gravitated to the uh, mm. borders with the ocean around the world. Also, the, the kind of expansiveness as well. I mean, I'm right by, I mean, I could, I could point the camera, I can see the, uh, the sea here as well in Marseille. And um, yeah, this is expansive, the vista and the long yeah. sight, the ability to have long sight. So you're not focusing kind of on the short yeah. sight. Yeah. When, you, when you reach your eyes, there's something about that, that, that perspective. 
Yeah, well, it, it's when you look at the. For me, I'm looking at the Atlantic Ocean, and there's nothing I can yeah. see on the other side except kind of horizon, <laughs> and it does help you put yourself in perspective. And you know, we're so used to boundaries and borders, and I think your point is good. The the expansiveness of it is, even though it's creating a sense of organic connectedness, it's also uh, emphasizing that. We're just a little, not very big in that big world. <laughs> That's a good place to end it. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, Thank you. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, it. Adam. Good, good to be with you.